Hello, everyone. Welcome back for a new episode of The Other 50. Today, we have the opportunity to have Mary Winiski coming on the show. And I know I probably mispronounced your last name, but as everybody knows, there's only one Mary and only one Mary that you need to care about in FinTech. So welcome. Thanks, Theo. It's good to be on the show. <laughs> Thank you. So we'll start off with something really, really obvious. I think that's how Brad and I knew you was from American Banker. Uh, you've been writing for quite a while now on FinTech, on banking. Um, it's not something I would say that, people would think about, you know, the minute you, you graduate from school, like, oh, wait, I want to write about FinTech. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about how that all got started? Yeah, so it was, you know, an accident, sort of. Um, I knew I wanted to do journalism. My first job was writing about fashion for a business audience. So I've long been a business journalist. And then I needed a job and I stumbled into an ad. It was kind of obscure. It was like, cover financial services. And um, that was actually for Royal Media Group. And my my transitional be beat from writing about high-end jewelry was to write about debt collection and the technology they use. <laughs> I was actually like the Tom of MySpace for debt collectors for like a couple of years. <laughs> and, you know, that firm owned Bank Innovation. So somewhere in that time, I transitioned to being like a part of that community and writing stories for Bank Innovation, which got me on the fintech path. That is so funny. I, you know, I almost forgot that that's how you and I first met was through Bank Innovation and then American Bank and now Bankrate and others. So you've actually been writing about financial services, what, for five or six years or more? Even more. I think I'm at the 10-year mark. It's wow. like very scary. <laughs> you know? We need to send you a cake that says 10 years. Please do. Yeah. <laughs> it might be my of... longest relationship. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So what was the longest stint? Was it American Banker or was it Bank Innovation? Or? You know what? American Banker, I think, was longer than Bank Innovation, but those were both long careers. But I think American Banker won that contest. I, I believe I, I was there for six years. Okay. Well, when you, when you look back at you know, the last decade of writing about financial services, uh, you've written about a lot of things. I mean, some of my favorite pieces have been around sort of consumer savings and you know, the technology that people are using to sort of make banking work better for them. But you've written about a lot of different topics. Um, talk about, you know, some of the things that you've enjoyed sort of digging into a bit more. Um, what, do you, what do you really like to write about? What are some of your favorite stories that you've done? Yeah, well, it's sort, it sort of evolved. Um, I think like those, those say that, like the technologies that help inspire people to save without requiring much of them was like sort of my starting point into like, hey, this is really interesting. This is a huge problem. Most people are up against. I'm really interested in how these entrepreneurs are rethinking the experience. So that was like an early storyline that I really cared about. Um, I think at American Banker, I really, really cared about like the data sharing issues between fintechs, aggregators, and, and banks. Like when banks were cutting off um, certain services, I thought that was super important. And the more I went into the storyline, the more complicated it got, where it seemed like there's no one totally right here. There's a lot of shades of gray. Um, so that was one of the more serious threads I cared about. And I think, I think though, I've come to find that features, topical trends, uh, features are like the thing I most enjoy writing about because it lets you play with the structure. You get to think about who's in the story in a, in a longer way. Like I like to cut out um, like physically on cards of like, hey, this is the first section on the story, second, the third. Now that's only if I have time, but 
one of the stories I had the most fun with was actually writing about how emojis were influencing banking. That was like one of my last pieces <laughs> for American Banker. And it was an idea I had been sitting on for at least a year or two. And I remember people are like, that's not a story necessarily. <laughs> Mostly, mostly because I wasn't pitching it right. I tend to think of, here's something that's interesting to me in a very vague way. I know there's something here, but I don't quite know. And then I just sat on it and I, I built up ideas. And I think it really came through at the end because in the end, it was just about like old technology struggling to communicate with newer technology. Um, and it was a lot of fun for me. But I, mean, I remember that piece too. I, I tweeted it out with a bunch of emojis with it. <laughs> I felt like I was having my dirty dancing moment where I was like, I'm Johnny. <laughs> so that one meant a lot to me. Yeah, I, I think that the future of banking really has to do with more emojis and more videos and I don't know what else, but uh, banking you know, has, has so many sort of uh, boring moments um, that, that aren't really interesting to write about. So why not more emojis? Yeah. Um, and there are so many tensions you don't think about until then you're like, you're a bit of an outsider and you're like, wow, there's so many dramas. There's so many like, who are we um, as an industry? And, it, and it's actually quite a lovely industry to cover. Well, you, you pulled a lot of um, personal stories into the way that you wrote as well. And I always appreciate the way that, you know, you kind of take a little bit different angle um, of all the, the people that I think we've worked with. You sort of look at a story a little bit differently and you kind of pull at a different thread than I think others do. So that's just a testament to the way I think you, you approach things. So. It's, it's been it's been good to work with you over the years. <laughs> Thank you. That means a lot. I think one of the uh, underappreciated moments where I remember the times you told me you used to review the comments. Oh yeah. Uh, oh my goodness, that those, those were interesting. Uh, I, I don't know how you do it because I only did it for a little bit for the pieces I wrote. I'm like, okay, I, I can't, I can't keep reading it. It would just make me crazy. Well, yeah. So Theo's talking about. I used to. So I at American Maker, I became part editor for the op-ed section and part writer still. And when I was the editor of the op-ed section, we did a, and they still do a, a weekly roundup of of kind of like outrageous comments or, or spicy, let's say it's spicy comments that, you know, often a traditional banker will make on the site. So, you know, there'd be a lot of like anti-feminist type of things or allusions to someone being a financial terrorist. Um, and then like upbeat stuff too, because of course, like there's a lot of, like the digital bankers are tend to be quite progressive, I think. Um, so it was a mix, but you definitely, you're like, wow, I can't even believe this is a comment. <laughs> well, you, 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 can't, you can't make it up, right? <laughs> I, I remember like a lot of times like reading those like sort of quotes of the week and it was like, okay, a lot of this was really political in nature yes. uh, because bankers, at least traditional bankers tend to really, you know, focus on that. And I'm sure that a lot of people's heads are exploding with what's been going on with this election cycle with Warren and Sanders and others. Um, did you ever find it, you know, like a place of thoughtfulness as well? Yeah, I did. You know, I think because, um, you know, it it's always good to hear another point of view. And I would say my point of view is probably quite different from the average banker. Um, so it challenges you on that level. And then sometimes it gives you a gem of an idea, right? There'll be a comment and you're like, oh, that's something to explore. I think one of those threads happened with something related to tribal lending, um, where some of the startups were you're we're partnering with tribal lenders as as a way to like work around um, regulations. Um, and I think that was a comment on a story. So, you know, that's 
it's a way to source something just as Twitter is, or at least have a beginning to know where to, to look. So, so speaking of, right, um, a lot of the work that you have centers around asking people um, their opinion on how things are changing, on how technology is enabling uh, consumer financial wellness or how it's changing the face of banking. Banking, as we know it in the future, will be different. Um, let's turn the table around. Let us ask you, how would you summarize 2019 for now? How would you summarize the trends that you've seen for now? Um, what do you think is going to happen in the, in the future? Let's say near future next year. We're getting close to 2020 after all. Yeah. So this one, you know, um, well, I'll start with what I've seen. So of course the market's getting more, we'll just talk about bank accounts. We're seeing a lot more bank accounts from like, um, from the startup side of things and more niche players, like um, solving very specific problems, like Dave banking being one option for, for people who are are worried about overdraft. I think I saw something where there might be a a bank account now for like new immigrants. So you're seeing more like narrow, um, narrow bank accounts pop up and then you're seeing like all those cash management accounts um um come into the forefront too like wellfront better betterment and you know they're paying a good rate and um providing a better seemingly better digital experience because one of the things now that i'm at bank rate you know we track a lot of what are the best rates but when you look at their online banking it seems like a very you know like there's a there's a gliding scale of like how good is this online bank where it looks like a cut and paste of a, a paper pamphlet to like something more like an ally, which is, you know, a useful online banking experience. So you're seeing a lot of, you know, you're seeing the crowded bank account market happen. And then you're seeing, you know, there's more experiments around like um, credit scoring and incorporating um, different data to hopefully get um, people access to credit that traditionally wouldn't get it. I think that's, Super interesting too, but then you're also seeing like solutions creating potentially more problems. Like I'm, I'm really interested in about like these these you know some of them are banks, some of them are not banks, but like letting people advance their paychecks to help bridge these like cash flow gaps. And now I was just like kind of on iTunes Day reading reviews, and it was like some one of the reviews was about this consumer stacking the app so they could like get three payday advances from three different providers. And I know, I mean, that's a whole nother risk. Um, so it's also like, when do the solutions cause new problems too? I remember reading a story yesterday um, on, on Wall Street Journal that talks about some of the fintech startups that enable people pay for small purchases at installments um, at a point of sale. And, you know, it, it was giving examples like, you know, clothing, right, or a pair of jeans or something like that, that normally you would just, you know, pay it out. And, and now consumers are choosing between either put on credit card or get one of those, you know, low, low interest rate uh, point of sale loan. But my, my question will be, are we making it so easy for people to buy things? We're enabling consuming things that perhaps they really shouldn't because are we just facilitating more consumer debt? Because we know that number has been going up. Right. No, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. It's an important question. And you can even see like um, a while ago, I did a story about like how on Venmo and things like that, like people sending the oopsie payment basically. And there's no, like, if you do that, you kind of have to rely on the goodwill of someone to send it back. And, you know, part of that is because it's just so easy to make a mistake on something so easy to use in theory, you know, so there's precautions in place, but you know, that is, that's a real...
there's, you know, looking at the stories that you've done maybe over the last six, nine months, and, you know, there's the typical, like, you know, different money market accounts and what's going on. This is the way that sort of neobanks are looking at overdraft and these type of things. And then I run across a story about Stacks House, and there's uh, an interesting <laughs> photo of you in there. I believe it's a pig or something that you're writing. Uh, tell me about that story a little bit. This is I'm glad you centered on this one, Brad. This was <laughs> one that surprised me. So Stacks House is something that came to LA. It's a pop-up. It was a pop-up. It had like, I think a five week run. And I remember I was out of town when it was opening and I was like, no, how can this be? I'm meant to be in this pop-up. I know it. Exactly. I heard about the mechanical pig. <laughs> so I showed up a little bit late thinking I was going to be offended. So backdrop on this, this is a pop-up meant to inspire women to like care about finance. Um, so there's like um, aphorisms on the wall, you know, like pass on the green juice or something like to save money. So it's like targeting a very certain type of person. It's like targeting like uh, the person going to bar classes, soul cycle, you know, it's not targeting that person's like that's struggling to pay the utility bill or something like that. Um, but they had all different sorts of room. Like one, you're like boxing uh, out your debt. So like you'd be boxing um, a, a bag that says like college loan or something like that. So it's, it's like an experience to make you feel something because I think one of the hardest things is to make the everyday human care about anything related to personal finance until they're having a moment where it's a problem. And of course that moment is inevitable for a lot of people. Who was behind the, the pop-up? Was there a large bank or something? No, but you know, Zelle was one of the sponsors. It was Farnoosh. Oh, I'm going to mispronounce her last name, but she's like a famous personal finance person. She buddied up with two other people to do this because they're building a whole, so they're collecting data or they were collecting data from this pop-up and they were going to bring it to other cities. I think they're still intending to do that. So it's like creating a whole brand. Um, and That's very cool. Yeah. So part of this was them collecting data on what people actually care about. And they did something really important. They did like events, chats of bringing like powerful women there to talk about like how to earn what your male colleague earns, you know, like, you know, like important topics. So it wasn't just, it wasn't just fluff. You know what they should have done? Collect money uh, before you can ride the mechanical pig and uh, donate their proceeds to uh, hopefully equalize the, uh, the salary a little bit. <laughs> Well, I, just, I just remember seeing the picture and I was like, wow, that is so merry. Well, oh, yes. And so that room, they have a mechanical pig. It's supposed to make you experience like what happens with the stock market? You should hold on tight, right? Because that's, that's the better end game. And it was sponsored by Charles Schwab. They let you wear the silver cowboy hat. <laughs> and then I think they give you a handkerchief. I think it says Charles Schwab on it. And um, yeah, you just kind of roll them around on that sucker. But it felt, yeah, it felt like a very me moment. I felt very aligned with my story. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was definitely one of the ones that stands out here. But I mean, you know, it's, it's important what, what you're doing is you're basically, in, in this case versus American Bank, American Banker, you were very much focused sort of inward into the industry and telling people a story about what was happening, the larger, you know, sort of tale of how it was changing. But here you're impacting, you know, millions of consumers that come to the site and helping them sort of find their way into sort of a better deal. So it's a very sort of big transition from going sort of inward to outward. Um, do you feel that responsibility? Yeah, it's been one of the hard, and I'm still, cause I still try to do like a trend, like recently I did that overdraft, like how the challenger banks are now letting people overdraft without charging them. And so mm -hmm. that's something I would have written that American banker marks something new um, and interesting. And um, so every now and again, I will do that. But yeah, it's been a real struggle to go from that, from inside the industry to outside 
A, to know what people care about, B, to still hopefully keep the like uh, feature that I care about as part of the mix. So it's kind of like finding, finding the balance there. Um, yeah, and, it, and it's, it's been hard and interesting and challenging and like um, it's making me think in a different way. That's one of the things, though, that in some ways, uh, as much as I love the reporting in American Banker, that, you know, now that you had left uh, a while ago and Robert and um, some others, like Sean, Sean Espedio, uh, I think that there's a little bit of that human story that often went into stories at American Banker, and it wasn't so much inside baseball. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that really is what's needed more uh, at some of these publications that are very much inward focus is to pull out the stories of what's happening in the economy, what happens uh, when people actually sit down and do their finances for their business or themselves um, is, is really that kind of thing. So putting more people on the mechanical pig and understanding, you know, what that means to the industry. So, uh, you know, that I think is important for, for that story to keep on coming out as well. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I hope to. Yeah, I'm still like right now I'm plotting out my net. I'm going to be doing some more editing, but I'm trying to plot out some more of my features. And yeah, it's a really interesting challenge for me. Um, But like my default is since my background wasn't, I never cared about finance until I started writing about it. So I feel like I can often go back in time and think, what would I have wanted to know? What would I have cared about when I seemingly didn't care about anything? <laughs> so like, I kind of use myself as like an example of that too. We would like to give a mention to our creative partner, Tremendousness. Tremendousness is a creative agency that uses visual thinking, information design, and storytelling to help organizations explore innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us. Do you think that your, your sort of sense of personal finances have, have changed because of what you write? Like, you know, I always imagine that people that cover this space like somehow have perfect credit and like all these other things. I mean, do you, do you get the sense that that writing about banking has made you a more informed consumer? Yes, most definitely. And there's still lots of areas, like I'm not a homeowner, so I, I don't have that personal experience, but I, I came from a place where I really didn't think about banking at all. You know, I think when my first, when I was living in New York City, I didn't, even, I didn't even think you could overdraft at that point. You know, like I certainly overdrafted my first job, not knowing I could dip below zero. Um, and yeah, now through the years, and of course your salary grows, so that's helpful too, but, um, you start to care about it. I start to have that, like, uh uh-oh, maybe I shouldn't get this thing, you know, um, because I can't necessarily afford it, but I'm not like a heavy budgeter. I, I, it hasn't affected me in that way. I mean, I'm mindful about how I spend, whereas before I, I didn't, but I'm not that like looking at Excel, I'm not even looking at like the intensive apps um, to, to help me out necessarily. But I would say I went from a place of indifference to a place where I care and I think it matters and I've come to think it's important and hopefully I'll, hopefully it continues to influence me to make <laughs> prudent, we'll call it prudent <laughs> decisions. That That's interesting though, because it actually brings up something that, you know, we've been chatting about for a while is there's no lack of PFM tools, 
right? Yeah. It's like there are so many of them out there. I think to the point is there were just way too many of them. But yet, if you look at consumer personal finance, right, it doesn't matter how old they are. It seems like we are all in need of some help. So the question is, and is always the debate, is it because the consumers are not educated? Is it because they don't know that they have to balance their in versus out? Is it because they lack of tools? Is, or what is it that drives us to the behavior and, and lend us to where we are today um, from, a, from a personal financial wellness perspective? What, what's your take on it? Because I, I don't think it's because of lack of tools. I, I think, you know, if, if anything else, it's just way too many. It's very confusing. And I don't think that is a lack of education either. I mean, you know, a little bit of that, but I think by and large, it, it's pretty easy to, to know that you shouldn't spend more than, than what you earn, right? I, I think the challenge that we face as a society in the U.S. is deeper than that. No, I, I mean, I agree with you. And I think, I mean, I think it comes down to pockets. Certainly, there are groups of people who, who could benefit from education. You know, certainly I was one back in the day, but um, there are plenty of tools. Um, uh, but then like some of the, I mean, if you test them out, it's like, you know, there's still like, there are kinks with like the data it's pulling. And so then it's not totally accurate. Or, you know, if you're get, just getting st- started out, it's going to say your, your net worth is negative likely because it'd be your, like college debt or whatever. And then it's like, who wants to engage with that? And then there are the lighter apps that, you know, that try to make it seem less bleak and just kind of give you an alert of like, Hey, this is how much you spent today or whatever. But I don't know. I think it just appeals certain apps appeal more to certain people. Um, you know, I, I don't know where I stand completely on what's right, what works, what doesn't. I just have to think it's got to be a lot of different things. Um, you know, some people want nudges. Other people would think that's obnoxious. You think I'm an idiot. So back off app <laughs> or whatever, you know, like... <laughs> But other people are like, good, great, outsourced, good. <laughs> but it's true though, right? There's no one size fits all. I think we're all in very different stages and different situations. I, I think just to say, you know, oh, you know, if you are a certain age or you belong to a certain bucket, this is what you need to do. I, I think I think that's just making everything too simplified. The way that we live our lives has gotten so much more complex because of various issues, right? Just like we, you were saying, you know, if, if you graduate with a loan or without a loan, where you live, what you do, um, even a generation up, right? Where Where is your family upbringing? What zip code you belong to? What jobs your parents do? What social circles you get exposed to? All of that factor mm-hmm. in what you are as a consumer and how you behave as a consumer. So there's no, there's no easy way. I, I do, though, in, in, in the bottom of my heart, some, somehow I really do think that the way we're making things so easy, the way we're making things so painless actually help to contribute to that. We don't get the pain of paying anymore. We don't have to open the wallet and say, oh, wait, I only have $10. I can only afford something less than 10. We don't have that. You take a credit card out and you swipe it. I remember last week I, I met a woman um, and uh, she told me when she, when um, through her experience, she teaches a financial literacy class in her kid's school in, in New York. And um, she said, you know, a little kid came up and approached her and said, oh, my family doesn't need money. We don't need money. And, and she's like, why, why do you say that? 
And she said, well, because, you know, if we need something, mommy and daddy just takes out this card and they swipe it and that's it. That's it. We don't need to think about it. We don't need to worry about not having money because we always have money. So that's the little kid's perception of, of money and the relationship to it. And, and I think that that is becoming a challenge, right? I see it in my kids and I, and we talked about it in, in a different episode where when I took my kids to Hong Kong and they pay everything with their watch, um, it has an NFC chip enabled so they can get on the ferry, they can get on any public transportation, they can go to the store, they can buy things, just touch and go. They had absolutely no concept of spending money. Oh, okay. I was going to ask you if you have tricks to make them. <laughs> no, no. It was, it was actually really scary. After a month, they got so used to it. When we came back to the U.S., I'm like, oh my God, it was so easy. I said, exactly. We need to stop that. It was too easy. Yeah. No, I think that, I, I think it was like toward my end of American Banker where the, the idea of like something needs to be less frictionless was coming up more during like trade conferences and whatnot, just like there needs to be sort of a pause button or like, I guess the Google undo of sending like a, a Gmail that you immediately regret <laughs> or send to the wrong person, you know, like same with like a purchase. So, so one of the things that you cover an awful lot in, in bank rate um, is the best checking accounts, the best savings accounts and what have you. We've got over 9,500 um, financial institutions in the U.S., and so compared to a lot of markets, we're, we're well overbanked. But, you know, the top six or ten banks uh, really dominate almost 90% of all the business in both deposits and, and the loan side. Um, and now we have challenger banks coming from Europe. We've got N26, we've got Monza, we've got Revolut coming. Um, do you think that they're going to do well in the U.S. market? Are you going to be covering these neobanks? I intend to. Um, I'm very curious about them. And I don't even know why I'm curious about them because, you you know, there are the other banks already here, like Chime being the perfect example. I guess Aspiration could fall into this group too. But, um, you know, like the checking account is still like not a great product for a lot of people. Um, so the reinvention of it is an interesting idea. But then when you, like the Monzo or the, the functionality often sounds similar to like other you know, kind of upstarts that are already here. But then with something like Monzo, which I believe has like a cult following in the UK, um, it's like, how do they even pull that off? You know, it's, it's curious. I feel like there is something to that, even if it's just branding. I feel like there's still this opportunity in America to really have this like hit, hit bank account, which will probably not be like, people won't think of it as a bank account necessarily. I think that's crucial um, to to success here actually, but um, I think there is still an opportunity. And I, again, I'm not sure exactly why, because even like some of the features, like I think it's still like advanced payday for certain people, you know, there's like different savings buckets you can set up using some of these, these products. And, you know, that's not like anything that's outrageously exciting um, considering what else exists here. But I mean, there's still not like a perfect bank account. I don't know if there ever would be. <laughs> but, what is the perfect bank account in well, your opinion? That's a good question. I mean, again, it will depend on your needs, right? Like for someone, it might be somewhat uh, a product that helps you get into the habits of savings. For someone else, that would not be true. Um, um, I think it depends. I certainly don't think it's like the fee model is good for most people. Um, it needs to be either like the set, the set fee, no surprises, but that's like, you can find so many options for accounts like that. Um, 
easy to use up. I still think onboarding is pretty awful. You know, I still try to sign up even for like the ones that are like allegedly good and, and better than others. It's still like, you know, vetting who you are. There's inevitable problems that come up and then you have to like email something in or mail something in. I think I even still see facts sometimes for like an online banking onboarding just because the bank has to deal with all the know your customer rules. Well, and there's a lot of mail-in um, KYC stuff that still happens, especially at smaller institutions. And you would think that digital, you know, ability to create an account would be like a thing now. But how many things have you written about over the last decade that have... So really, many, Brad. Right? It's like, oh, this should be like a thing or like, like this should be fixed or, you know, why yeah. are we still using bill pay or, you know, I just... Uh, and it's crazy. And then like how you have to answer the like, what's your mom's middle name as part of the experience? It's just wild, you know, like how that still that's still a thing. Well, and that's, I think that's part of what these neobanks think they solve. But the reality is, is that, you know, you come into a new market and you still have the same regulations. The biggest yeah. difference between the US and, you know, the UK or other markets is that, yes, the majority of them have four or five players at most 10 that dominate, but there's not this long tail. And that's what's different about the US is that you have a long tail of over 9,000 different types of institutions in your communities. And I would hate for that to really go away. I think what's what's unique about our market is that we actually have community-led and community-run financial institutions, and I think they make a difference. And you probably see that in, in the rates that you look at. Yeah, definitely. Um, if, if you could write, you know, sort of outside of this space or inside, if, if you know, you're that intrigued to continue to dive into it, if you could write about almost anything um, going from what you've done in the last decade, what would you write about? See, this is always hard. I always know it in a moment. I feel it like I'm feeling this feeling. Um, today, like I read, I think it was an op-ed in the LA Times about this guy renting out vans to homeless people. And I was like, damn, I wish I, <laughs> I wish I wrote that story. You know, like that's something I'm intrigued by. And, but I'm intrigued to like smaller moments. Like um, sometimes I try my hand at like writing an essay and I, I feel like I'd be interested in doing something on like, when you leave a company and you write a goodbye message, I'd love to like read a bunch of people's goodbye messages to the company. I bet that was an interesting essay and something like that. Um, um, but yeah, small moments. I, I, the seemingly ordinary, seemingly mundane. I think we share a, a love of Susan Arling who wrote the library book most recently, but she really like shines a spotlight on like local, Seemingly, not even local, seemingly ordinary things. And there's always something extraordinary about that. So like, that's, that's what I'm, I mean, I subscribe to like the grocery store newsletter. <laughs> I subscribe to the local free pet press. And there's a story in that too. I'd love to do a story. The lady who writes the, the editor's note has been banned. Her pub has been banned from like shelters. I think it's shelters. And I'm like, clearly there's some odd story there um, that's waiting to be told. <laughs> I mean, you don't get banned so easily, I don't think. But um, so things like that. But it's hard to tell. It usually reflects a mood. Like Theo, we connected for a story I did on retirement. Um, and in that moment, my mom happened to be retiring and kind of hit me really hard on an emotional level because she was a librarian and she ended up influencing my career in a lot of ways. I didn't really process until that moment. Um, so it just kind of had an emotional element um, to doing a story on that too.
I think that's what it is, though, right? We talk about that a lot. Is is what you do and what you write end up being impacted because of how you grew up and where you grew up, or things happening around you,、um, which is which is something we wanted to ask you actually. So you were in New York, now you're in LA, and you grew up in the middle of the country. How does all of that impact what you do and and what you write about and how you write? Because you get it's it's different, right? I mean, even just the left and right coast are different. I, I make fun of Brad all the time, but you know, <laughs> if, if, it, okay, we're talking San Francisco versus Los Angeles. Let's not get into that. But anyway, oh, I think we had a different story about that too.、Um, but anyway, so how how does how does living in different places、um, impact or, or change, if at all, what you see and what you write? Well, you know, I'm trying to think of a concrete example. I know when I was an American banker, I went through a moment where I'm like, I have to write about technology, Midwest technologies,、um, and I did a fun story or like an interesting story、um, on just like startups trying to root in the Midwest to learn more about like the local problems. Because, you know, I I might have even blogged about this. Like, I really believe like a male author can write in the female point of view. You can like you can understand people. You don't have to be. That person to understand someone's needs, and yet you might miss something easily. In that Midwestern story, I remember some guy was、um, working on a startup trying to help people afford homes, and and they were homes that were like sixty thousand dollars or under. And he said something like, "Investors would always think you're missing a zero, no, right? <laughs> like, and that's because they weren't there. <laughs> you don't, you know, you don't necessarily know the market unless you just like stumble into things. So, like, that was something that." I was probably drawn to because I grew up in the Midwest, and there was like a lot of headlines around the Midwest at the time. So that happened from New York to LA. I don't know.、Um, I don't know exactly how it's influencing me. I mean, certainly there are more banks in New York than、um, than LA,、um, and I live so I live across from a Scientology church. Um, and then, like artists are behind me, a lot of screenwriters, and then on the corner, there's a lot of like homeless tents, and it's like a very Um, I mean, I'm literally as I'm writing, liter- literally poverty is staring right at me. I can see, like, I can see it right now when I look out, and I think that must influence, you know, because now, all right, our brand covers a lot of wealthier people issues, but I'm always drawn more to like mainstream problems, and、um, and I'm and seeing- mainstream problems become, you know, our society's biggest problems too, right? All yeah. Now. I think recently about、um, actually, Brad. I think it's like somewhere close to your backyard.、Um, people, residents, being upset about、um, homeless challenges in their neighborhood. So they brought in big bulldozers and they brought big, big rocks and lined them up outside their community so people cannot set up tents.、Um, they can't sleep there.、Um, and and there was a commentary on on that article. It talked about. How the rocks brought out the the problem. The problem wasn't so much the rock. People were protesting about the rocks, but it wasn't the, the rocks. It was actually the inequality. It was the homelessness. Those were the un- underlying fundamental issues that brought out people's sentiment about rocks.、Um, <laughs> it it、uh, yeah, I think that, that's I think not something was, we see in New York. I、right? think that was in San Francisco,、um, but they they the same article I think talked about、um, someone who. It used to be a sommelier、uh, at some of the best restaurants in the Bay Area, who's now homeless in Oakland, and、um, the homeless population in Oakland has doubled over the last couple of years,、uh, and it's very, very visible. And you know, one of the things that you brought up earlier, Mary, was kind of interesting.、Um, 
you were talking about sort of gender and empathy and some other pieces. I, and I wonder, you know, what's the biggest challenge when we think about, you know, putting ourselves in the shoes of others? Is it, you know, a, a mix of gender or is it a mix of sort of other sort of socioeconomic um, issues that, that really are more divisive? Um, and, and just being able to see sort of economic inequality um, within a block's radius of where you are physically uh, is always something that I think is important for people that are on Wall Street um, or who are executives inside banks to really look at more uh, because I think decisions would be different. I, th I agree. And I mean, even I'm thinking of the early days of like certain founders would show me their apps that were budgeting apps, but it would be linked to their bank account. And there's so much money <laughs> in that linked bank account. I couldn't help but think like, wow, you're designing, Must be nice. yeah, <laughs> like you're designing this for, you're not going to know the problems, the cash flow problems. Cause again, I think volatile income is like such a hard thing to solve for, but the, uh, yeah, I, I, I think, a lot of people in banking are, you know, on the wealthier side and you're going to miss um, some, some things. I mean, again, in moderating the comments, um, even at the debt collection site too, it'd be like, you know, it just seemed like such, such damning of this person who was, who's struggling financially. That was like the point of view, like you're, per you're financially scamming us, that sort of thing versus the like, you know, thinking about the other side of the coin. The uh, interesting thing when you meet three founders from Harvard when they're creating like a bill splitting app and they think they're going to take over the world, it's, a, it's about the same as when you're trying to explain to a bank executive who's probably making about five to $10 million a year what Venmo is all about and why <laughs> Venmo is important and why emojis are important to banking. It's just, you know, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a gap, I think, in terms of an understanding between people of wealth and people, well, let's just put it this way, the 99% of us who don't have it. Right. Yeah, I agree. I think we can do a whole episode on how do we bridge the gap. That'll be our next one. <laughs> so curious, some of the things that, you know, I, I think all three of us like is, is we love to read. Um, so wanted to know what is your favorite book, Mary, and what are you reading right now? So this is always tough because my favorite always seems to float, but The Brothers Karamazov seems to be the lasting book of my life where I tend to read it at the holidays. And I think I'm drawn to it because there's so much passion in it. I mean, characters, there's a family murder, first of all, that's very exciting. <laughs> but also like it just, it does indecision and passion so well. And it explores all these existential angst that, you know, we we inevitably face as humans. And so that's one that I go back to all the time. Family murders, and you like to read that over <laughs> holidays? That's a shout and, out to mom and dad. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Mary, remind, you, remind me, do not see you around the holidays. <laughs> Good, write that down, Theo. <laughs> I have it noted. Um, what are you reading right now? Right now, I'm reading Trick Mirror. Um, by Gia Tolentino, and it's like, um, well, as she says, reflections on self-delusion, and it's, um, it's very interesting, because she's, I think she's a couple years younger than me, but she's writing on things that I'm like, oh, I don't usually read an author that's in my age range, so it's like speaking to points that really resonate with me, so that's, that's what I'm reading right now.
I think we love to collect books that that our friends read, and that way, you know, we can have something fun to chime in next time. Well, I would probably not about the holiday murder. But yeah. <laughs> There's another one I read not too long ago called Bless. That is a beautiful book about like a a man who's uh, at the beginning incapable of relationships and goes on this batty trip around the country to avoid like an uncomfortable moment, but it's a beautiful book. It won the Pulitzer Prize, but it's like a comedy too. And it's just a, it's, it's worth a read. That's very cool. All right. So with that, thank you so much for coming to our show. Um, hope you had a good time. Uh, we certainly did. And uh, thank you all for listening in. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Keep writing, Mary. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.